Welcome to the Tuesday review edition of Unexpected Points. We're going to go through Super Wild Card Weekend, which included a lot of super blowouts. I'm going to give you all the inside numbers, the grading, the efficiency, everything to look for, which may not be part of the narratives this week. Let's get to it. All right, everybody. No uh, Benjamin Brown today. Some scheduling conflicts here. You're going to get me solo again, but luckily for you and for me, it's an abbreviated schedule we're going through here. Six games instead of a max 16. So I can dive in in a little bit more detail and not have to shuffle through some of the stuff here. Unfortunately, you know, as I hinted at in the intro, there are some blowouts. There are some big ones, some big blowouts in this one here. And the blowouts were not just a couple of scores, uh, teams pulling away in the fourth quarter. I mean, these were massive. These were massive blowouts. And I don't want to get too much into the decisions to expand the playoffs versus having the traditional format of only six seeds on each side. I mean, I could touch on that a little bit, a little bit of an overplayed angle. Honestly, we didn't hear a lot of people talking about it last year. The Colts bills matchup in the wild card round may have been the best wild card game, the two versus seven matchup there. And even this year, the thing that I'll mention about blowout central is it's not as if there's some sort of magical drop off after the sixth best team in the conference. I think it's just this year we happened to get the Steelers in who were a worse team than a handful of teams that could have made the playoffs. In particular, the Los Angeles Chargers, who, if they came in as a seventh seed, they would have faced Kansas City. They played two fantastic games this year, splitting those games. Uh, would have been a pretty close, rather than a 12-and-a-half line, I don't know what it would have been. It would have been significant. It would have been six or something like that, but it wouldn't have been close to 12-and-a-half. And on the other side, you know, the Eagles just had a pretty poor performance here. I think it was more the Bucks really coming into form defensively. But even so, you know, the Saints were one, te- one spot out of making the playoffs here. And the Saints, of course, beat the Bucks twice this year. Uh, bageled them the second time they played. First time had Tom Brady in fits. So you switch around the participants slightly, and we wouldn't have necessarily had Blowout City. But just to quantify what we're talking about here when we're talking about Blowout City, these games were legitimately over in the third quarter. The three super blowouts that we ended up having this weekend. Well, I guess it was more like four super blowouts that we ended up having this weekend. Um, There was a 100% win probability with seven minutes left in the third quarter. Last night, the Rams got to 100% win probability. It got to 100% for uh, Tampa Bay with 5-12 left in the third quarter. 
and it got to 100% win probability with 7 minutes and 36 seconds left. So that was actually slightly earlier for the Patriots and Bills. And then lastly, which I actually forgot to look up here, for the Kansas City-Pittsburgh game, let's go ahead and bring that up. When did we actually hit 100% win probability in that game? So that one hit 100% at, oh, we have a winner. 100%, 35-7, to 7, Kansas City was up with 8 minutes and 46 seconds left in the third quarter. So yeah, these were, these were like extraordinary blowouts. The infamous, well, so a part of that too is when it comes to at least the Steelers game and the Eagles game is that we had a 12.5 and an 8.5 point spread on that. So it really gave them a much lower chance of, of being able to come back in there. And using the same system and I'm cribbing off of, we have to get our one podcast every week podcast note for Ben Baldwin, who will be joining me later this week to discuss the Seattle Seahawks in the future. Um, going off of his model, if you go back to the infamous 28-3 comeback for the Patriots in the Super Bowl against the Atlanta Falcons, even that game, according to the same model that I'm, that I'm telling you is, going, is getting you legitimately 100%, rounding up from 99.9 up to 100% for these games. Even that game never got above 99%. Even at 28-3, even at later in the game when I think it was 28-12. So 28-12 pretty decently into the fourth quarter. So these were really, really extraordinary. Even at a higher, higher level than the 28-3, there was legitimately no chance of comeback in four out of the six games midway through the third quarter. So yeah, that that's that's not not the best football, but good for um friend of the pod, JJ Zacharyson. We'll talk about East Coast dads like myself. Good for us, because all the late games ended up being in that re- in that regard. So here's the here's the format for today. I'm going to hit Monday night first, then I'm going to go through chronologically the games from Saturday and Sunday. I'm going to give you a little bit of upfront information on the game, the matchup, the betting line going into the game, the actual score, and then what I call my adjusted score. Always like to preface everything, explaining the adjusted score a little bit. So the adjusted score does is it looks at a combination of what actually happened offensively and defensively from an efficiency standpoint, but then weights a little bit more the success rates versus the efficiency. And when you do that, when you look at a play-by-play basis, whether or not a team was successful or not, and you measure it that way versus you measure sometimes a successful play will be a little bit of a game. Sometimes it'll be a 90-yard touchdown. Sometimes an unsuccessful play will be an incomplete pass. Sometimes it'll be a pick six. So when you downweight some of those outlier plays, you get a more consistent measure, especially when you're looking at a small sample like a single game on how well a team actually played. And then looking at historical trends and modeling based upon success, a combination of success rate and actual efficiency on what sort of score you should expect, adjusting for the number of drives there are in a game, downweighting things like special teams play, making adjustments for the fact of their turnover-worthy plays that do not end up being turnovers, I downgrade a team's offense because of that, 
And then vice versa, if there are turnovers that were not turnover-worthy plays, I give them a little bit of a boost. So if an unlucky play happens, if something like a receiver drops the ball and then the other team catches it. Just the more random, the more variance there is in a particular play, the less credit that I give that I give it here. But the scores are roughly in line, you'll see, for a lot of these different games. But it does help point out particular games that go against our what the results are and even sometimes what our intuition is for what for what happened in the game. Okay, but before I get into the first matchup, the Monday night matchup, which again, blowout central, so we don't necessarily need to dig into all of the the details behind what happened here. Before I get into that, let's talk PFF. If you want to get a PFF sub, we have free agency coming. We have the draft coming. This is the time to get ahead of the curve when it comes to not only what you know about what's going to happen in the NFL, but maybe even getting some offseason stuff going on fantasy, getting some offseason stuff going on well, you may be doing some best ball drafts. All of that information, the betting information, if you want to get, which has been performing extremely well for player props for these last couple of weeks of the season, all of that is available. Promo code unexpected for this podcast, unexpected points. Show your love, 25% off. Get all the locked article content, get all the tools and everything else that you could possibly want at pff.com. Okay, let's get into it. Cardinals at Rams. First, I was going to say the first Monday night football game, but I'm hearing that there may have been a Monday night playoff game decades ago. But, you know, for our for in our life, in our recent memory, first Monday night football game here, three and a half points to the Rams. So the Rams had the three. They got the hook there for three and a half. I think it may have even been four earlier in the week. If those of you who were listening to Ben Brown and I break down some of the weekend games and bets that we liked. This was the one that I liked the most was the Rams. I'm not going to give myself too much credit because there are a lot of blowouts here that I didn't like. Um, but this was the one that I liked the most. The final score, 34 to 11. Again, this was over in the middle of the third quarter for all intents and purposes. And my adjusted score is 35 to 10. So almost exactly in line with what we saw. This was a serious blowout. And I think a couple of things I want to pose versus what the narrative is made coming out of this. So we have obviously a self-destruction for the Cardinals and a self-destruction offensively. And there's going to be a lot of post-mortem, I think, on what happened with them. And a lot of it is going to sound like the concerns we heard about the Cardinals in Kyler's rookie season, in Kyler's second season. And if you remember, the reason I was a little skeptical on these Cardinals coming into this third season is because even in their second season, even before the Kyler shoulder injury, which hampered his running ability and limited that offense where in the first half of the season, they were being somewhat successful offensively last year. But a lot of it was Kyler's unsustainable rushing production where he was running in, you know, 25 yard touchdowns on a pretty consistent basis. A lot of it was Kyler just go do something. And that looked like it was fixed at least temporarily, in the first half of this season. Kyler's dropback numbers, excluding scrambles, were way, way up the production that he was producing. He was more like middle of the league the year before, and now he was jumping into the top 10. There was legitimate and justified MVP buzz about Kyler Murray 
the first half of the season. But what we saw in the second half, and was it just randomness in the first half that ended up coming back to him? Was it DeAndre Hopkins' injury, which doesn't necessarily make sense because obviously they had Hopkins the year before what was happening? Um, was it Kyler Murray regressing in some sort of way? I don't really know. I think I'm going to get into it again. I'll have the Cardinals as one of my postmortem podcasts in the offseason. Got to find someone from the from the Red Sea to come on who's who'll be good to dissect all these things with. But clearly the offense was not on track in this game, and I think we all saw that. But you were not going to expect this type of bottom barrel performance that we had. Kyler was losing about half a point per play. Uh, his grade was, you know, down in the 50s. Just not good. Not good at all for him. So we, we can set that aside a little bit because I don't think anyone is listening to this and thinking, well, that's a controversial take that the Cardinals offense was bad. Now, the Cardinals defense, which has been getting run all over, again, optically, if you look at some of the full game stats here, the run defense for the Cardinals doesn't look that bad. But a lot of that is based upon the fact that in the second half of the game, the Rams were, you know, running out the clock and they were just extremely unsuccessful running the ball in the second half. So that's what brings their success rate, their EPA per designed run in this game. It ended up bringing it way down. Uh, they only had a 23% success rate running the ball. They only they were losing a quarter of a point every single time they passed the ball. So not, you know, not good uh, for the Rams there. But again, that was mostly in the second half when they were trailing the entire time. So we we can set that aside. I don't think we can really say the Car- the Cardinals defense was extraordinarily bad or extraordinarily good against the run as some of the top line numbers may say. But again, they knew it was coming. We all knew it was coming with the running plays. But what's interesting is the first half they weren't that good against the run. And in the first half, this is something where even watching the game, it didn't sink in as much as you may have thought. And this will turn to our discussion on Matthew Stafford. Was in the first half again twenty-one nothing at halftime, so it was you know approaching blowout central at this point. The Rams had twenty-one designed runs to eleven dropbacks in the first half. I mean that is hugely skewed towards the run. And again, this is not a game where they were so far ahead, so early, that they were already in grind-out-the-clock mode. So I think that's something to keep in mind when we talk about Stafford's performance here. Now, it's going to sound like I'm hating on Stafford a bit, and again, I'm just trying to push up against what we may hear as as some of the narratives coming out of this one. And of course, as a nerd, as an analytics guy, I am legally obligated to hate on Matthew Stafford and also to... Uh, it, it, it's second in our in, a, in an agreement that we signed at the beginning of the year for analytics nerds hating on Matthew Stafford. The first thing, of course, is wishing all running backs to only make league minimum contracts and fighting against them. So I'm being facetious on both of those accounts. Um, so the thing to think about with Stafford is he had a 90 plus grade in this game. He had an EPA per play above half a point, which is an extremely high outcome. It would have been something even, you know, it would have trumped 
everyone in, in, in this game, in this week, if it weren't for the fact that Josh Allen went completely nuclear, which, which we'll talk about. Um, so we had those types of numbers, but again, 11 dropbacks before it was a 21-0 game. And they were never forced to consistently pass the ball. And the Cardinals' defense, it really just, they performed better against the pass. They got completely destroyed from an efficiency perspective here. But it's kind of hard to generate anything and get anything going when you're consistently put in bad positions field position-wise because your offense is doing nothing. You're spending a ton of time out on the field. And they're running the ball so well, it's hard to play and play action. They're using a 40% play action rate on what I call run possible downs. So in other words, on first or second down or third and short. So downs where you could potentially run the ball. They were using play action 40% of the time the Rams were. And because of that, the Cardinals only got a 20% pressure rate on Stafford and only 4% fast pressure rate. And I track pressures that come in 2.5 or less seconds because that is really the median point for when you're going to potentially be able to generate a sack or a, or a poor outcome is if you get there really fast, you can do a better job most of the time affecting the quarterback. So they weren't getting any pressure on Stafford. So again, Stafford, good game. He makes throws that you can't see from Jared Goff or someone else. But again, in this game, they didn't really need it. They didn't use him that much. He wasn't under pressure. So not exactly the game to figure out a whole lot from him. Against Tampa Bay, I think it's going to be a whole different question. And just to get an idea looking ahead at what our friends in the desert and other betting markets think about this game, it is at three points right here. So that gives a decent amount of credit to the Rams because if they were equal teams, it would probably be more like two and a half ish. So the fact that they're moving it up to three, it is leaning a little bit towards the Bucks, but you're not even getting the hook going up to three and a half. Um, what else to talk about in this game? Odell Beckham Jr. People are going a little too nuts for uh, OBJ in the first quarter. I agree. He had some big plays before the game got out of hand. Again, he ended up with 55 yards or something like that, four catches. So it's not as if he had fewer catches and yards than Cooper Cup still, even though Cooper Cup did nothing early in the game. So I thought that Beckham made some plays, including the fade, which are highlight real type of plays. But again, he's still a secondary at best. Uh, you know, secondary tied with a bunch of different options in the in that Rams passing game, and very useful because Robert Woods is gone, but not necessarily the most useful piece. Um, be after Cooper Cup because you have Higby and Van Jefferson, who are also very very impressive in this one. But I think generally, again, strong game for the Rams is how I just wrap everything up. But chill a little bit on the Stafford hype. If there is any coming out of this, I know he got his first playoff win. Congratulations to him. He definitely played well, uh, but whether they needed him to play well in this game, I'm not quite sure. And he was set up in legitimately the best possible circumstance you could have in extremely limited volume, no pressure and high play action in this matchup. Okay, let's go back in chronological order now. We'll step back to all the way back. Seems like a lifetime ago. Saturday, late afternoon for us on the East Coast, which uh, the Raiders at the Cincinnati Bengals, the Bengals ended up six-point favorites. That was an interesting one because I think it started six and a half. It went down as low as five, maybe four and a half, five, and then ended up settling back at six. Not the most important points, but a little bit interesting movement there. 
Now, this is going to be the most controversial adjusted score that I have in this game because we know the the actual score in this game. We know the actual score was 26-19, and the Rams had a chance to score. I mean, not the Rams. The Raiders had a chance to score at the end, as we saw. My adjusted score has these two teams being equal, 24-all. And that's going to be controversial, and it was a little bit unexpected on my point because the feeling that we got from this game was that the Raiders were kind of outmatched. And despite the fact that they had this chance inside the 10-yard line at the end of the game, down by seven, I mean, if they score that touchdown, who knows, they might go for two and try to just sneak out of there. With with the win, so they had some chance of sneaking out of there at the very end with the win. Despite that, it did not feel close. Joe Burrow put on a great performance. You saw the stars when it came to Burrow and Chase doing a lot uh, for the Bengals, and you didn't get a huge feeling of of a lot of good things on on the Raiders side of the ball. So why is this so close? Well, again, I mentioned earlier, you know, the the Raiders had a chance there at the end, so. Not only was it close by my adjusted scores, but it was closer than the seven-point result in what really happened with the team that drove all the way down the field. And it's not like, you know, you're not going to kick a field goal in that situation, but they could have easily, of course, right? And made it a more narrow victory. So that's number one. Um, Number two, there was a big strip sack of Derek Carr and a fumble. And that, while... You know, it's not the most high-variance type of play. It was a huge play, and I'm going to downweigh that a little bit in the numbers. And I think one reason this game did not feel as close but ended up being as close, and this is where we're getting back into a little bit of concern here with Zach Taylor, is the Bengals could not run the ball, but yet they did again. They did not lean on the pass like they had in weeks 17 and 18 when Joe Burrow went insane. In those last couple, I'm sorry, not, not 17, 18, 16 and 17, because they didn't really play in 18, uh, 16 and 17, when he went insane, where they were passing 10, 15% above expectation. We went back to this one. They were 4% over expectations. So they weren't under expectation, but again, only 4%, only a 59% drop back rate. They ran the ball a lot. And I think that is something where you don't notice it as much, but Teams can creep back in the game. You're giving the team more and more chances if you're running it on first and second down a lot, and you're just not able to get those conversions. If those third down conversions are not flying your way, and there's going to be a lot of variance in those third down conversions, then all of a sudden there can be an issue, and you could be giving up valuable possessions over and over again and letting that other team creep back into the game. I mean, the Raiders passed it 82% of the time versus 59% of the time for the Bengals. Now, the Raiders weren't very successful passing the ball, but they were okay. You know, they had positive EPA, despite the fact that they had this fumble. Uh, They lost five points, basically, five expected points lost on that fumble, despite that. And uh, the Raiders were slightly better converting third downs. It's another huge metric that has a big effect on the gameplay, where they gained about six points on their third down conversions versus the the Bengals gained a couple of points. The Bengals were 6 of 13 on late down conversions. 
and the Raiders were 10 of 21. So, you know, roughly same percentages, but they ended up juicing a, l- a little bit there on those types of plays. Um, Whistlegate, should we talk about that? For Again, for me, not really a huge mistake, I would say. And it kind of depends on how you want to look at it. I do think there is value by being very rigid in saying, these are the rules, a mistake was made, follow the rules, despite the fact when I looked at it, I don't really think there was any effect on the defense. If you listen to the whistle, it came so late. It came when the ball was in the air. It came when the ball was almost already into the end zone, maybe in the end zone. So I don't think it had any effect on the actual play there for, for Whistlegate. And in some ways, you know, people aren't talking about it that much outside of Raider Nation right now. So in some ways, I think the NFL maybe made a smart strategic decision of just letting that go because if they call that back, if the Bengals don't score there, most fans are in love, you know, infatuated with Joe Burrow right now and, in the, you know, nationwide. And if they don't let that score, the Bengals have a chance to lose that game. Again, it was a close game, very close game by my numbers. Then people would be much more upset on the other side about the incompetence of the officials for having that inadvertent whistle as opposed to the incompetence of the officials for not sticking with the rules for the inadvertent whistle. You know, so I could go either way. I could believe either argument that you need to stick with what actually happened here. You need to stick to the rules despite the mistake or... In certain circumstances, if you if you let it go, it's not the biggest deal there. Um, so the biggest strategic mistake. So let's talk about game management stuff. Let's talk about some nerd shit. Um, strategic mistake here, the spike that came at the end of the game for the Raiders. Let me get the exact numbers here because uh, I'm missing the, the time left on this one. So if if people remember correctly, the Raiders had the ball. They were down inside the 10-yard line. And let me get the exact numbers here. Okay, so here's what it was. First and nine, 30 seconds remaining is when they snapped the ball. So this is when they snapped it. So they had 45 seconds remaining at the 19 on third and 10. They pick up the 10, barely. Um, they get up there, 30 seconds left, first and nine at the nine yard line, and then Carr spikes the ball. So the last play, let's fast forward here on fourth and goal. And I think if this was third and goal instead of fourth and goal, if this play was being made earlier because of the, the, the spike did not happen, I don't think Carr would have forced it and got necessarily intercepted on that one. It still could have happened though. So there's still an argument that, yeah, he would have just been intercepted on third down instead of fourth down. So what's the difference? But that ball was snapped with 17 seconds remaining. So that means, theoretically at least, you had 16 seconds that you could have just gotten set before that first down play. Now, of course, you would have been cutting it very, very close. So let's say it would be more like at least 10 seconds that they could have used up before that first down play to settle everything to make sure everyone was on the same page and you would have been you would have gotten an extra down and not had to spike it there you could have used 10 seconds and still had enough time to get off the plays that you really needed in that circumstance i think there so that's part of, that that's part of the play 
Um, and we're talking about the probability that you would have gained by doing this. And just to say a little bit behind the scenes here. So coach Rich Basaccia said that there was a communication issue and they would have been better off running a play than spiking it. I, it's just like, you just can't mess up these things. You have to play out these scenarios beforehand. You have to have it in place. You have to know when to spike, when not to spike. This has to be routine sort of stuff. You cannot be reacting in the moment. People have to be drilled on this because the leverage in these situations is so, so, so enormous. And if we're talking about the exact leverage that on this type of play, so if you assume you had a 30% chance of converting from that nine-yard line, let's assume that. Um, if you have three chances from the nine-yard line, so you have you either convert 30% of the time on the first chance, then you convert 30 times 0.7. Uh, uh, you know, on the second time, then you convert 30 times 0.7 times 0.7 on 30% times point, or sorry, 0.3 times 0.7, 0.7. Again, you don't want to get some math nerd shit here. Um, it comes up to about a 65% chance of converting in three plays. And if you stretch that out, if you give yourself another play at 30% conversion rate, it goes up to 75%. So you cost yourself about a 10% chance of scoring a touchdown in that circumstance by not having that extra down. And if you want to flip it to think about it as a failure rate, so your failure rate, you fit rather than failing 35% of the time, you only fail 25% of the time. Again, it's a 10% difference, but that's pretty significant, right? It's like a quarter, more than a quarter of the failure, failure rate goes up by either a third or a quarter, depending upon how you look at it. Uh, so just really bad, bad process there on that last play and I think it comes down more to anything to having the players and the coaches and everyone else on the same page when it comes to these scenarios having game planned having done scenario analysis having even done role playing on this sort of stuff to know exactly what you're going to do in those circumstances so you don't have to worry about communication issues being a problem there you're ready to go you know if we have the ball inside the 15 yard line Rather than spiking it, we know what play we're going to run in that circumstance. These are just things you should know in advance in case this happens in a close playoff game. Uh, so that was a big one. Again, when it comes to the Mayock stuff, so Mayock out. Peace out, Mike Mayock. Back to NFL Network potentially here. And I'll get more into postmortem on the Ram, on the Raiders. Maybe I'll bring in our man, Austin Gale, Raiders fan, to discuss it a bit more. Just quickly to go over it, I was looking at the the picks that were made, and again, these are just looking at the first round selections that Mayock had, and you know, what, is it Mayock? Is it Gruden? Who's influencing who? What happened? I don't know. But the big thing that stood out, and this is research that uh, Timo Risque has done, and it and it, it falls with intuition here, is that when it comes to the draft, reaching is a lot more negative, then you're, you're going to lose a lot more by reaching than you are going to gain by picking up quote-unquote value players. And the reason being is if you reach on someone, that's your one opinion that this guy is, is, a, is a reach, well, at least potentially a reach. We don't know where other draft boards have them. So it's more likely that one team is going to be wrong reaching for someone than if a player falls 10, 15 spots and you scoop them up, those are 10, 15 teams that all decided to pass on a player. So it's less likely that you're really getting a value there. Um, and if you look at the Raiders picks, I think that's really the problem. 
with these high-value early picks that they had was consistent reaching where, again, maybe it wasn't reaching by other draft boards, but it was reaching according to consensus uh, big board that Arif Hassan puts together for The Athletic. He has a consensus big board where he aggregates all the different results from different draft prognosticators and draft raters to come up with the consensus ratings for these guys. So just to quickly go over this, again, we'll post more and more on the Raiders going forward. So Alex Leatherwood, who was their 17th overall pick in 2021, he was 45th on the consensus board. Pretty huge difference there. 2020, Henry Ruggs, they drafted 12th. He was 14th on the big board. I mean, he looked like he, he was potentially working out until, you know, obviously the the tragic on all sides. Um DUI car crash that that he had, and but what's one little interesting nugget there, of course, is that Jerry Judy and C.D. Lamb were rated higher on the consensus big board than Henry Ruggs. Judy hasn't been great, but C.D. Lamb has been pretty pretty darn good. Uh, Damon Arnett, again, another guy whose career is basically over. Nineteen, they drafted him nineteenth overall. He was sixty third on the consensus big board. I mean, just a monster difference there. Uh, and then back to 2019, the first year that Mayock and Gruden were there, uh, Farrell was, he drafted fourth. He was 20th on the consensus big board. Josh Jacobs, Josh Jacobs is actually 25th on the consensus big board, and they drafted him 24th, so not that big of a difference. But I think we know that running back value, that's just, a, we know that's too early, just based upon the positional value argument there. And then Jonathan Abram, they drafted 27th, he was 46. So again, we're talking about pretty consistently guys who are 20, sometimes 30 slots, sometimes more than 40 when it comes to Arnett slots before their consensus opinion on there. And, you know, sometimes you can, you can do that. Sometimes you can find guys who are out of the consensus that you really know well. But often a lot of these things, the Raiders may have you know, been able to wait around on some of these guys and pick them up, and they didn't. So if you're doing that consistently, and we only have three of three drafts, they're doing this for at least one guy. They're drafting him way, way too early. Three of three times in the first round, it, it shows a lack of process there. And I don't know, we can't necessarily put it on Mayock, like again, versus Gruden, but you got to put it on somebody. Again, we'll, we'll postmortem those guys some more going forward. Let's look at next week, the Bengals at the Titans. Uh, Titans are three and a half point favorites. That's actually a little bit wider than what some, than maybe what some people would uh, expect. But of course, they're coming off the buy. Everything else there, uh, people are hyped up about the Bengals. They may think that that's a value there. But again, seeing that this game was tied according to my adjusted score, seeing coming into this game that the Bengals were not even really like a top ten ish sort of team. They were a little bit worse than that coming into this uh, in the NFL. I think that's probably a fair number. But I'll get more into it for the. Thursday slash Friday pod later this week. Okay, before we get into the next game, let me just get to the next sponsor, and that is Western and Southern. Want a chance to win the Ultimate Game Day Feast, whether it's football or financial savvy, winning starts with asking us questions. Would you like to know what it's like behind the scenes with Al on Sunday Night Football? How about a need to know for your financial future? Western and Southern is teaming up with PFF's very own Chris Collinsworth. Sorry, I'm this ad read is like all over the place. Ah, to share insights that you can help put your head in both your financial and 
fantasy scoreboards. Every submission earns you a chance to win the ultimate feast to celebrate football's favorite Sunday. We'll cover your catering up to $2,500, coordinate an order from a restaurant near you, and have it delivered on February 13th, 2022. And don't forget to check out the Chris Collinsworth podcast and Western and Southern's Instagram for answers to the best questions each week. Submit your questions to westernandsouthern.com slash feast. One more time, that's westernandsouthern.com slash feast. If you're watching on YouTube, check out the link in the description below. Remember, with Western and Southern, you can rest assured on game day. Oh, one quick aside about the, the Bengals is that I was looking at the Andy Dalton quarterback performances versus Joe Burrow. So Burrow had this, you know, 90 grade gaining a third of a point per drop back. <laughs> Danny Dalton's four performances, and I feel sorry because I like the red rifle a little bit. God, his four playoff performances were so bad. He, they were all in the lowest quartile when it came to efficiency or grading there. So congratulations to Bengals fans not having to relive that. All right, let's get to blowout central Saturday night. Patriots at Buffalo Bills. Buffalo was a four-point favorite, which I thought was pretty fair. Ended up uh, being a little bit light, 47-17 Buffalo. My adjusted score, 42-13. to So to get a 42 adjusted score is pretty amazing. And, of course, this was a blowout. But for me, this was kind of a fun blowout in a way because it wasn't like it was on some of these other blowouts where there was some puttering around on both sides. I mean, the Bills had arguably the greatest offensive performance in NFL history. And this is not hyperbole. You know, I'm not prone to hyperbole here. This is not hyperbole because they accomplished something that has never been accomplished in NFL history, which is no punts, no field goals, no turnovers, no turnover on on downs. Every single time they had the ball, which did not result in the end of the half, Right? The clock running out of the end of half. Every single time they had the ball, they scored a touchdown. Never happened before in NFL history. They had a they had a success rate in this game, 68.5%. Best success rate in my database that we have. They had a total EPA per play in this game, 0.67 EPA per play. Best EPA per play. I have in 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 my database. Their run on running plays, their success rate was 64%, which is a 99th percentile outcome. Their running plays, their EPA per run, and this is a big thing with Devin Singletary and what they're doing, and of course Josh Allen contributing mightily there, was about 0.3 EPA per play, which for running efficiency is about a 96th percentile. And then their dropback success rate, 72%, their dropback EPA per play over one. 100th percentile, 100th percentile. Zero interceptions, as we mentioned. So no turnovers that they had issues with the issues with there. Only a 26% pressure rate and a 0% fast pressure rate. So they were not getting pressure on Allen, but that appeared to be the strategy was to keep him in the quote unquote well, keep him in the well, don't let him get outside, have back end guys. Make them make plays, and and he sure did make plays in this, in this game. What was interesting here is that, you know, while Allen had the second highest EPA per play in a playoff game that we have on on record, the highest being uh, Philip Rivers in a 2007 playoff game against Peyton Manning. 
poor Peyton Manning. He comes up against uh, the you know the 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 most ridiculous efficiency on the other side of the ball and ends up losing. Um, and Rivers only had twenty something dropbacks. Only had like twenty one dropbacks in that game. Whereas Allen was you know above thirty as far as the plays that he was he was involved in. And then Allen also had the second highest grade that we have in playoff history for this is from two thousand and six on because that's when we've been grading. Second highest grade in playoff history. And the highest grade was Patrick Mahomes against the Bills in his 2019 run to the Super Bowl. So don't have a lot to say on the Bills side of thing in the offense. It's incredible. Don't want to get ahead of ourselves too much. But, you know, they, they were good running the ball, which I think is important. And people are going to focus on the fact that they can win in multiple ways now. But again, they started two-thirds of their drives passing the ball. So they still were starting off early and often relying on Josh Allen passing the ball. And, you know, they had 100% third down conversion rate, of course, because they never were stopped. But it helps when you only go, they only went to third down six times on the 28 different series of downs that they had. Only six to 28. So that really helps. Don't get to third down. That's another lesson that they learned here. And you did that quite often by passing a lot of the time on first down. I want to talk about the Patriots offense for here. Because I feel like Mac Jones, he had a little bit of a difficult stretch near the end of the season. He had, I think, four of his five worst grades in the final five weeks of the season. You know, 76.8 passing grade in this game. Not that bad, despite the fact that he didn't really do anything. That first drive that they had, remember the Bills got the ball first. They scored a touchdown. I can't remember if that was the um, Dawson Knox one where it was kind of on accident that they scored the touchdown or not. But anyway, they they scored the touchdown there. That might have been the second touchdown. They scored the touchdown there for the Bills. The Patriots get the ball back. They drive down the field. Jones throws, which I think was a pretty good ball. I mean, he could have looked off the Micah Hyde a little bit more on a double move to Nelson Aguilar where it was a perfectly placed ball, and Micah Hyde made an incredible play on the interception there. So even with that turnover-worthy play, with the negative from that play, you know, Mac Jones still ended with positive .1 EPA per dropback. He still ended with a 76.8 grade. And it's just really, really hard to play where the Bills start with the ball and they score a touchdown on every single possession. So you get intercepted on the end zone on the first possession. You get the ball back. The second time you're seeing the ball, you're already down 14 nothing. you know? So you had a successful-ish sort of drive with a great defensive play. Let's say you punt the ball again on that second drive. You get the ball back a third time. You're down 20 nothing because they miss an extra point for the Bills. Again, you get the ball back a fourth time. You're down 27 nothing. That's hard, man. That is hard when you're just having a few drives that aren't being successful and you're completely buried. So the fact that Mac, you know, hung with it, had decent numbers here, um, I'll give him some credit for that. And I think that for the future, again, I'll postmortem all of these teams one by one in different pods here. But I think for the future, I I wouldn't be getting too down on Mac Jones based upon this game. There are a lot of other teams here who ended up winning, even teams who ended up blowing out their opponents, where if they would have had a similar start that they had, one of them being the Chiefs, the Chiefs would have had a similar start to what the Chiefs had against the Bills, with the Bills scoring a touchdown in every possession, they would have been completely buried. They would have been dead. They would have been down 40 nothing before they ever got anything going based upon what happened in their early possessions. So let's not bury 
uh, Mac Jones and the Patriots too much on this, their offense too much on this, because it was really just the defense that got torn to shreds. And, you know, this is, this is what Josh Allen can do. Can he put together, can he stack, as I like to say, four games here and do this? I'm not quite sure, but they do have a great defense and they have the running game coming around a bit, which is going to help quite, quite a lot in their ability to push through on this. Okay, let's get to Sunday. So Eagles at Tampa Bay, Bucks. The Bucks were a seven-point favorite. And this was really interesting. It got steamed down. It was eight and a half for most of the week. And then I guess some big bettors who had been supposedly, this is all hearsay, of course, supposedly been betting on the Eagles all week, put a bunch of bets down on the Eagles and moved it down to seven, which goes through not only some key numbers, but it, it, it enables you to tease the Bucks all the way down to zero, which is, which is, I mean, all the way down to one, which is interesting. Uh, final score, 31-15. So obviously those betters were not very happy. And the adjusted score is even worse for me when I adjust for everything. 34-7, to seven, Tampa Bay. Um, you know, Hertz was bad. He was bad. And, you know, you know I'm driving the Hertz bandwagon. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to, you know, cape for him later this week with an article on, on Hertz and why he could still be the guy. But, you know, he was bad. He actually finished with a higher EPA per play than Dak Prescott. So, yeah, you know, Dak seems to slide out of some of some criticism, which is weird because he used to get so much unjustified criticism before in the past. So not an awful running game. They had decent running efficiency here, but they just couldn't get it going. They ended up with a 20, 75% dropback rate, which is roughly in line with the expectations. I think that's probably a mistake. Uh, Hertz looked a bit hampered running the ball, so maybe that's why with the ankle, so maybe that's why they weren't running as much, but they should, probably should have pressed on that button a little bit more. I know they got into panic mode somewhat early, being down early, uh, but obviously did not help him. So let's talk about Tristan Wirfs is probably one of the bigger things here that he was injured. We'll see if he ends up coming back or not. Uh, he was the second most valuable tackle, offensive tackle, according to my PFS plus minus numbers. If you didn't see those analyses, I look at I cluster similar players. I look at the actual on-off splits of those clusters, and then I apply them back to the players within the clusters, and I run that a bunch of different times to get some good averages. He was, you know, the best pass-blocking tackle uh, on-off by my numbers. And it had a big effect, I think, with Werfs out. Uh, Jensen was also out. Their, their guard was also out for a little bit, but he ended up coming back. It had a big effect on how Brady ran this game, and maybe the conservatism of some of this game plan might've just been that they were up so much. But if you look at what Brady did, he had a 4.9 yard average depth of target, which is his lowest of the season. He averaged 8.4 yards on the season, Uh, 2.1 second time to throw, which isn't that out of the ordinary He's 2.3 on the season. One of the lower time to throws, but still a little bit quicker. And he still took four sacks. He never taken more than three sacks in any other game this season. So there were some issues there. Now, some of those were on third down where he was, holding the ball, and, and it wasn't the biggest downside vis-a-vis an, uh, uh, incompletion to go ahead and take a sack in those situations, but still, something to, to think about when we're talking about them facing the Rams' pass rush in the divisional round. And I think the, what the Bucks did defensively, they had a 73 coverage grade the first three quarters. Maybe a lot of this was Hurts having problems, um, but I think what the Bucks did defensively, and this is something we're also... Uh, also applies to the Rams is defense is unstable. We know that we know defense is unstable. We know defense is highly dependent upon the offenses that you're playing against as far as what your performance is going to be. D 
defense has an effect, but it's going to be roughly two-thirds of the predictive effect, if not a little bit less, than the offense has. But it has an effect. So I think what we're seeing with the Bucks defense coming together and playing a little bit better here, and the Rams defense coming together and playing a little bit better here, is sometimes for our defensive projections, what we have to rely on maybe a bit more than we do offensively, where talent reveals itself, skill, repeatable skill reveals itself, predictive abilities reveal themselves a little bit more offensively. Defensively, it's a little bit more muddled. So I do think we can maybe lean a little bit heavier for teams like the Rams and the Bucks to say they had down years defensively this year. I mean, if you look at, let's let's pull up the numbers here for 2019, sorry, 2020 versus 2021 for these teams. Okay, so let's look first at Tampa Bay, since this is who we're talking about here. So if you look at their numbers for how they performed this year, their success rate was 10th, total success rate against, against this defense. So 10th versus 7th the year before, and then 2019 third. So it had been falling off a bit. But I think rather than be concerned and say, oh, and you know, now they're borderline top 10 defense and they were better before, I think you have to rely a little bit more on looking at talent and not just the results. Same thing for 12th in success rate for the Rams this year versus second last year. Uh, 11th in EPA per play for the Rams versus first last year. You know, the Rams still have Jalen Ramsey and Aaron Donald. The Bucks still have, and they got back, Levante David, and they have the, the, the great safety play, and they have the, the guys up front in Vea. Uh, Vita Vea coming back and others to stop the run. So they still have these guys that they're, that they're playing with. Now they have some injuries, of course, but I think we have to rely a little bit more on a talent-based evaluation for those rather than relying too much on a results-based evaluation because of the fact that defense is instability. It flips the other way. We can be more positive about certain defenses based upon the underlying talent we know they have. I think for the Bucks, that's a pretty big thing for me is that Guys just did not look like they were open on the back end, and they were able to get pressure and really shut down, potentially shut down running games, and the Rams haven't been that good running the game. So if they can shut down the running game for the Rams, again, who are heavily, heavily reliant upon the running game, that could be a really, really interesting matchup in this one. Uh, Quickly on the Jalen Hurts discourse, I mean, I'm with most people, I think, on this, which is he is an acceptable option. I think he can be the guy there. But for the same reason I thought Jalen Hurts was, drafting Jalen Hurts was a good idea because you didn't know what you had in Carson Wentz, you know, I can't say that it wouldn't be a bad I that it would be a bad idea to look at other quarterbacks this season for the Eagles when they have so many picks here. And if you look at his numbers, I'll have an article again on this later this week. He is in the thick of quarterbacks who end up being successful. He's not on the level of Herbert or Burrow as far as his projections going forward. And those guys look if you look at guys who have come into the league after been drafted 20 2006, since we've been tracking data on, Herbert and Burrow look the best other than Patrick Mahomes. But the most similar QBs to Hertz as far as their performance so far uh, through two seasons, Andrew Luck, Carson Wentz, Cam Newton, Matt Ryan, Dak Prescott. Um, so, the, you know, some successful guys. And the only guys who are close that did not make it to their second contract were Jameis Winston and 
uh, RG3. And of course, RG3 had already fallen off a ton in that second season versus his rookie season with the injuries and everything else that happened there. Uh, so you, there's, there's positivity there. I agree there may not be ceiling, but there's positivity for being able to build around Hurts. And that's about to be something to talk about more, again, in offseason postmortems. Uh, let's get to our last ass read. Ass read. <laughs> that's not, not ad read here. And that is DraftKings. We're on to the divisional round of the NFL playoffs with DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL, is celebrating with huge odds boosts for new customers. Counting down to Super Bowl 56, new customers can get 56 to 1 odds on any team. Just bet $5 and get 280 in free bets if your team wins. And if the sportsbook is not available in your state, you can get in on the action of the divisional round with huge cash prizes and daily fantasy football contests. DraftKings is giving all new customers a free shot at millions of dollars in total prizes with their first deposit. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code PFF and get 56 to 1 odds on any NFL team. Bet just $5 and win 280 in free bets if your team wins. That's promo code PFF for 56 to 1 odds at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Must be 21 or older, New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania only. New customers only. Minimum $5 deposit and $1 wager required. One per customer. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com slash sportsbook for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Okay. Um, One of the close games here. One of the few close games. Uh, the 49ers and the Dallas Cowboys. Dallas ended at three and a half point favorites. Everyone seemed to love San Francisco in this one, and they were right. 23 to 17, San Francisco. My score, not really more narrow, but just a little bit muted on both sides. 19 to 14, San Francisco. Okay, the blame game's going on now. We're already like post-morteming the Cowboys here between Dak McCarthy and Kellen Moore. And what's interesting about Moore is I think they announced that he has three head coaching interviews and you know, people want to send him out of town. I'll probably get get more in these postmortem sort of questions about coaches and everything else. I, you know, I'm not huge on needing to lean towards a play caller guy, but I think it's interesting that sentiment is so low around him, a poor offensive performance to end the season, but he still does not seem to have fallen off of people's list for head coaches. And that, that might be right. Uh, let's talk Jimmy. You got to talk Jimmy. You know, Jimmy was not good in this game. He had basically a flat EPA per play. His grade was down in the 50s. Of course, our grades always hate Jimmy versus others. But, you know, we concentrate a little bit more on his egregious mistakes than we do on the littler things that he does well. So he had the bad miss of Ayuk on a third and 10, and he had that interception, which was god-awful. But you you can't, like, ignore what he did earlier in the game, where they were okay running the ball, but they still needed him pretty consistently to convert third downs, and he did that to keep them in the game. They ended up getting field goals on some of these on some of these drives, which held them down. But they were being very successful, at least being able to score early in the game consistently on drive by drive basis. Still, overall, Garoppolo was six and six of eleven on third down, so a better than fifty percent conversion rate. He has one of the top third down conversion rates of quarterbacks in recent memory. You know, close getting up towards that Josh Allen, Patrick Mahomes sort of range, um, and the one. One of the failures he had on third down was the third and 21. So it's not like he really had a chance of even being able to convert that. He converted a third and 12. I think it was via penalty, but still. A third and 12, a third and 10, a third and nine, and a third and five. And he took zero sacks, which again is something that our grading is a little bit hesitant to blame quarterbacks for sacks. And because they don't blame quarterbacks for sacks that much, because it's hard to figure out. Um, 
you don't get that much credit, relative credit, for avoiding sacks. You know, zero sacks for him. There were 13 different sacks taken for, well, actually, this does not count Monday night. But the 13 sacks taken on Saturday and Sunday, we didn't grade any of them negatively. So that just gives you an idea of how generous some of our grading can be on sacks. And Jimmy does not get credit for the fact that there are times where he's being pressured. He was being pressured on in 2.2 seconds or less five times. Didn't take a sack on any of those plays. He converted some of those. Other ones, he's just you know throwing at the receiver's feet and just spiking it and taking an incompletion versus a sack. You don't get credit for that in our grading. You do get credit for EPA, and that's why he ended up having a flat game versus some people think that he had a bad, bad game. Now, Dak Prescott had a bad game. Dak Prescott had a similar grade to what Garoppolo had, and he was losing a quarter point EPA per play. Um, There's going to be a lot of uh, gnashing of the teeth over what to do with this Cowboys offense. I know that our own Seth Galina, PFF underscore Seth, wrote up something on it. I think part of the fact that they're not throwing it deep as much, I don't know how much to blame on the offensive philosophy when we still have Kellen Moore is still the same guy who was there before. How much of it is Mike McCarthy coming in and, and influencing his West Coast offense type of stuff for the, for the shorter A dot? How much of it is just CeeDee Lamb appearing? Now, CeeDee Lamb gets there and becomes a target hog immediately. He's a lower A dot guy. He's been a lower A dot guy. If you look at the targets that went to Higher A dot guys like Gallup and Amari Cooper. I mean, it's much lower this season than it was in 2019, back when Dak had a, a higher A dot. Now, the A dot to those particular receivers is also a bit smaller. So, is that scheme? Is that the fact that all of these defenses now have been holding down the A dot for a lot of different quarterbacks? You know, Patrick Mahomes, Josh Allen. Maybe Dak has also had to face more of these too too high shell coverages, which has been keeping things down. But I think a lot of it, and the one thing that people may not be focusing on enough, is the fact that it's a target shift to guys like CeeDee Lamb, who are very talented. And the Cowboys offense was doing pretty well, despite not necessarily stretching the field earlier in the season. So you can still be efficient without stretching the field. So I don't, I don't, you know, I'm a little bit ambivalent about blaming too much on scheme or not driving the ball down the field where you're getting the ball you're trying to get the ball into your best player's hands, CeeDee Lamb. CeeDee Lamb has a lower average depth of, of target, generally, than those other receivers. Uh, this was like the this was the Super Bowl of bad game management decisions here in this game. Uh, if you look at the win probability forfeited on fourth down by punting or taking a penalty or taking a delay of game or Field goal here. Uh, McCarthy had three different decisions where he could have had a little bit of extra juice. He lost 2.6% win probability. Shanahan, two decisions, 6% win probability. And the, the really, really egregious one was the one where they had, you know, two minutes and change left, fourth and one near midfield, and they didn't go for it. Now, they ended up actually punting, stopping them, getting the ball back, and then having another fourth down decision where it was more Jimmy's fault on going a little too early that they would have converted that they then ended up kicking. But still, that was a 4.4% in and of itself. And that's a huge win game. That's like losing multiple offensive starters type of win probability gain. And you're just giving that up by not going for it there. That was, um, that was, uh, I mean, it's just bad, bad, bad. Shanahan, you got away with it here. Um, everyone's gonna, you know, probably blame Jimmy if things go wrong again, but you just can't do that. Cannot do that. Uh, the late draw play, I'm of two minds of that. 
I do think there's probably a little bit more time to juice a play like that than you would have thought, but I would rather have thrown it to someone like Dalton Schultz just because he was already had a four or five yard lead on Dak um, rather than running it with the, with the draw. And obviously you slide earlier, everything else. And I don't think your chances of converting one play from the 25 yard line are that much better than trying to convert two plays from 40 yards out. So yeah, that, that, that also I'm not really sure about. You may even get three plays from 40 yards out instead. So it's probably not a good decision generally. If you need a field goal, I think that is a good decision to try to do a quick, a really quick play and then get down if you barely have any time left. But yeah, probably the wrong call. Again, you got to game plan these things beforehand. Got to know exactly what you're going to do. Maybe they did and they messed it up. But part of that game planning would be, and again, maybe Dak just forgot this. Part of that game planning would be you get up there and you get the ball to the ref as quickly as possible because the umpire has to touch the ball and has to put it down. That's the rule. You don't block them off from getting there. You don't try to do it yourself. Again, drill these high leverage plays into it. You know, they do extra drilling for red zone, right? They do extra drilling for red zone. Do extra drilling for end of game scenarios all the time. Be pounding that into your players' heads. So it's almost like you're you're operating on instinct instead of thinking. Because when you're thinking, things can go very, very wrong in these circumstances. Uh, we'll do a postmortem, as, as I've said before, again, on all of this. I think it's pretty interesting that the 49ers are ooh, it opened at four and a half. And now that's up to, it looks like six or five and a half. So they're, they're getting some decent juice there for the Packers on a little bit of a short week. They're going to be going there on Saturday to play um, all the way in Green Bay in the cold. That's going to be a fun matchup, especially when you think back to what happened in the playoffs in 2019, where the 49ers ran for about 12 yards a carry against the Packers. Don't think that's going to happen again. That was in San Francisco, but it'll be a fun matchup between these two. And LaFleur gives them a pretty strategic advantage when it comes to these fourth down calls, despite the you know the fourth down that everyone wants to point to that he may have messed up against the, the Bucks last year. He's been consistently so much better than Shanahan on those decisions that that's a nice little tick towards Green Bay and their ability to win this game. Okay, let's talk about the last game here. Blowout Central again, as I mentioned, uh, with, with a lot of other games. Steelers at Chiefs. 12 and a half point favorites were the Chiefs. They win 42 to 21. Pittsburgh got some scores there to end it. I have it as 40 to 10. I'm not giving Pittsburgh a lot of credit for those garbage time touchdowns. Again, this could have easily been the Chargers or maybe the Browns or the Dolphins would have been better teams than the Steelers making this game, but it wasn't. And, you know, the Chiefs offense, I think people talk about how they were on fire in this game. This is how the Chiefs offense started the game. Again, I love the Chiefs. Okay. I love Patrick Mahomes. I'm a Patrick Mahomes stan big time but this is how the Chiefs started the game punt punt interception punt fumble six if they were playing the buffalo bills in this game and you started with five unsuccessful drives you would be down five touchdowns (laughs) before if you played the buffalo bills the way they're playing against the patriots which of course will not happen again but if you were doing that you'd be down five touchdowns So I don't care how well you were playing after that. It would have been difficult, very, very difficult to come back. They were lucky on the other side of the ball that Pittsburgh was just running three plays, doing nothing, and punting the ball right back to them. I mean, the overhaul for Pittsburgh is going to be enormous. 
uh, trying to figure out what they're going to do this offseason. And for KC, I don't know if we really got a lot from this from KC. I mean, it was a little bit interesting that Jarek McKinnon was so involved. I think Clyde Edwards-Hilaire is going to be back, so McKinnon will probably be throttled back. But again, it just goes to the point of why are you spending a first-round pick on a running back where you can get a guy like Jarek McKinnon off of the street. You don't have to worry about whether he really gets injured or not because you didn't have that much of an investment in him. And he had more reception. He was tied for the same for the most targets, more receptions, more yards, more first downs than Clyde Edwards-Hilaire has had receiving in any game of his career. It's 25 games in his career. McKinnon did this in this one game um, where Edwards-Hilaire was supposed to be like a special receiving talent also. Um, this so the, So going forward, Kansas City is in Bills, which is probably the marquee game here. It's going to be the Sunday night game. Two and a half point favorites. I don't see that going anywhere. Maybe it could go down to two or one and a half, but that's pretty inconsequential type of points. I think it's going to stay towards Kansas City no matter what. I don't think it's ever going to get to, you know, um, a point where the Bills are going to be favored. And I don't think there's any chance of it going up to three either. If anything, it could probably going down to two or one and a half towards the Bill is, is more likely. But this is as even of a matchup as you're going to get. The most even matchup, I think, of the weekend. Maybe you could say Bengals-Titans, but I still think this is pretty much more even. And it could go a lot of different ways here with offenses that have struggled sometimes and not others. And with defenses that have been playing really well, I'm more confident in the Bills' defense. What's interesting is in that 2019 game that I talked about where Patrick Mahomes had the best grade ever, I was kind of high on the Bills coming into that game as being a sneaky good pick. And, you know, they, 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 they got their asses handed to them in that game. So we'll see what happens in this one. All right, everybody. As I mentioned before, coming at you, I think Thursday we're going to release. Uh, midday Thursday after taping in the morning, I'm going to talk to Ben Baldwin about the Seahawks. We're going to preview the divisional round. Um, and I'm sure he'll have some interesting things to say about Pete Carroll, about Russell Wilson, about the philosophy there, about potentially needing to blow things up. I definitely want to talk to them about all of that. I appreciate all of the listeners here. Again, promo code PFF, I mean, sorry, promo code unexpected at PFF.com to get 25% off. And otherwise, I'll be talking with you in a few days.